Well, as we begin this morning, I want to share with you a favorite story of mine of a little boy, maybe you've heard of it before, who decided one day that he really wanted a bicycle, uh, but he wasn't sure how to pray. He wasn't sure how to convince God to give him a bicycle, and so he turns on the television to try to find some Christian programming. He comes across a high church, very traditional robes, uh, garments, fragrance, incense, really you know, high flute language, and he was very impressed by it. And so at night when it was time for bed, he prayed to God this. He said, Almighty and eternal God, if it is in your vast and infinite plan that I get myself a bicycle, may it be according to your perfect will that I may sing your excellencies every day that I ride it, world without end, amen. Goes to bed, pretty excited. I mean, this is a pretty awesome prayer. Wakes up the next morning, runs outside to the driveway. There's no bicycle. So he's pretty upset. He thinks maybe I didn't pray the right prayer. And so he goes back inside, turns on the TV again. And this time comes across a more prosperity, name it and claim it, listens to it. And he says, they seem pretty confident. This is obviously how I'm supposed to pray. And so at time for bed, he gets down on his hands and knees, closes his eyes, puts his hands together and prays this. He says, dear Jesus, I declare my need for a bicycle, and I also declare that it be blue and silver and demand that it be here tomorrow morning by 6 a.m. because you want your children to prosper and be happy, and I need my bicycle to be happy. Thank you. Amen. Wakes up, goes outside, super excited, and there is no bicycle. At this point, he's extremely frustrated. He's extremely mad. He goes back into his house, goes into his mother's room, and finds a statue of Mary. Puts the statue of Mary under his arm, and he goes outside. Now, his mother is watching what is going on here. She's kind of confused as to why she took uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, as a statue outside. He's gone for about 10, 15 minutes, goes into the woods, comes back in, and she notices the statue is no longer with him. He goes into his room, closes the door, and she's very confused as to what's going on. And so she goes to up to his door, puts her ear on the door, and hears him saying this, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. <laughs> now, I love that story because we're going to look at this morning, how does God relate to us? How does he provide? How does he care for us? And it's a little bit different than how we often might think. And so today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Mark chapter 6. If not, there's a black one around you. You can read along with us. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. I'm really excited about this morning. We are going to be looking at, as we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark, one of, if not the most famous miracle of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. And what we're going to see is how what often happens when we come across really uh, familiar passages is we assume what's going on, when in the reality is we actually miss a lot of what's actually happening. And so we're going to see that this morning really quickly uh, to get us caught up. We ended our, we took a break at the end of November from our series of Mark. And so the last place that we were was uh, earlier in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is back in his hometown of Nazareth, kind of gets rejected by his own people because they kind of assume you're from here, you shouldn't be able to do the things that you're doing. And then he sends his disciples out two by two to the surrounding villages to preach and share the good news of the kingdom. He sends them out, even though they don't fully understand what's going on. They've got a lot of things wrong at this point. And then after that, there's a, uh, the, the verses before the passage we look at today. Uh, we're going to see in verse 14, it talks about how King Herod heard about this. He heard about the signs and the wonders. And because Jesus' name had become well known, in verse 14, it said, Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why the miraculous powers are at work with him. 
Now, then it talks about how, how recently before this time, King Herod, who is the heir, uh, kind of the governor of this area of the Roman Empire, had actually beheaded John the Baptist. And so the passage right before this passage is kind of a break from the narrative, talks about how Herod uh, killed John the Baptist, and he's very confused about how all these things are happening. And so what we see is that John's death is supposed to foreshadow the suffering of God's messengers, and we're going to see the difference between that banquet that Herod threw uh, right before this in Mark chapter 6, which got John the Baptist killed, and the banquet that Jesus uh, throws for his people. And what we're going to see is that the passages in Scripture are never randomly thrown together. They're always ordered in a very particular way for particular reasons, and the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is no different. And so we're going to start today in chapter 6, verse 30. Here's what it says. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So again, remember, he had sent them out. They'd been gone for a couple of weeks. Maybe we're not quite sure how long, but for a while. And they come back to tell Jesus all that had happened. And then verse 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. Now, the disciples were, by definition, a word that I don't like to use, which is busy, right? Because in our culture today, in my opinion, a lot of our busyness is really a lack of intentionality with our time. But by definition, they were exhausted. They had been traveling. They had been teaching. Um, they are hungry. They can't get away from the crowds. Everywhere that Jesus goes now, people follow him. And so they return back to Jesus. They are all exhausted. And they're probably like, yes, let's get away. Let's go away to spend some time to rest. Now, it's also interesting to me. I don't know why I never really thought of this. But as I was studying for this passage, I also thought, imagine what it was like to be a disciple of Jesus and be an introvert. Now, if you're an introvert, maybe you've thought about this before. But you are around people all the time, right? And then Jesus has just sent you out to go talk to people that you don't even know. So you have to start all these conversations for however many weeks. You come back to Jesus and you are exhausted. And yet there is a, another crowd that like you cannot get away from them. Even though that is the point, they're hungry, they're exhausted, and yet people are crowding around them. So they get into the boat. They're near the Sea of Galilee. So sometimes you took boats to fish. Sometimes you took boats to cross the sea. And then sometimes you took a boat to go up and down the shoreline because it's faster than walking. And so they're trying to get away from the crowd. They take a boat to try to go to a remote place. And then here's what happens next, verse 33. But many saw them leaving and recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. So people see, word spreads, that Jesus and the disciples are here, and then they start to run. Now, to be fair, the translation here in verse 33 is a little bit difficult in English. We're not exactly sure um, if they just kind of knew the direction that the boat was going, and so they ran on ahead of them, which is what our translation seems to suggest. Um, it could be that they just kept following the boat, and then wherever the boat landed is where they ended up. Or actually, in the Greek, it also could be that Jesus saw that this crowd was following them along the shoreline and decided to stop going where they planned to go initially and just put up anchor and go to the shore to help them. But regardless, there are many people coming. The disciples and Jesus cannot get away. And so Jesus goes to them. Verse 30, 34 then says this. And when he, talking about Jesus and, of course, his disciples, went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. 
Now, again, to put this in context so we understand what's going on here, when you and I, in our kind of modern culture, hear sheep without a shepherd, we kind of think of like, uh, like pastoral care or gentleness or love and nurture. Like Jesus was just, you know, he saw all these people. And he just wanted to care for them, which is true. Uh, but in a Jewish context, sheep without a shepherd or a, sheep leading, or a shepherd leading his sheep when it comes to people, uh, was actually very often used as a figure of speech. Uh, for a leader like Moses or a military hero who would gather forces for war. In other words, normally this phrase is more about leadership and victory, that Jesus looks out to these people, sees that they're scattered, sees that they do not have a leader, he sees that he does, they, do, they do not have someone bringing them together, and so out of compassion, he wants to go to them. He goes to them to give them direction, to give them purpose, to give them something to live for. And then, of course, what happens, Mark tells us that he teaches them. Of course, in Mark, we are very often are not told what Jesus teaches. Now, we know in Mark chapter 1, he's all talking about the kingdom of God and how he is the fulfillment of all things. But in Mark, he very rarely tell, talk, uh, focuses in on the teachings of Jesus. Instead, he's focusing in on the teacher and who he actually is. So he goes to them. He begins to teach them all day. And then it says this in verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted, and it is already late. Send them away so that we can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy them something to eat. So again, they're all tired. It has been weeks, including Jesus. They are initially trying to get away from the people. The people follow them, and so they spend all day with yet another very large crowd. And now we have a problem. It's getting late, and the place is deserted. This is actually the third time it says this. Uh, in verse 31, it says that Jesus told them to come away to a remote place. In verse 32, they got into a boat to go to the remote place. And then, of course, now in verse 35, it says the place is deserted. This is the same Greek word on all three instances. Uh, the Greek word eremos, which means uninhabited, deserted, or remote. Essentially, they're in the middle of nowhere. Like there's nowhere, there's no close town. There's nowhere to go buy bread and, and feed the people. And it's also getting dark. And of course, it's not 2022, so there's no electricity. There's no lights to be turned on. And so you have a very large crowd in the middle of nowhere who hasn't eaten all day and it is getting dark. This could be a potentially big problem. And so what the disciples want to do is they want to send the people away to get food. Now, given the lateness of the situation and the fact that they're not close to anything, it's not a really great suggestion, but it's better than nothing. Probably at the end of the day, they just want to get the people out of there. And so they, this is Jesus's response to them. After they go to Jesus, say, let's send them away to eat. It says this. Jesus says this. He says, you give them something to eat, he responded. Now, I mean, come on. This is, a, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Right? Jesus yet again says something that is actually quite impossible. How in the world are the disciples supposed to feed all of these people? There's nothing around, and they clearly don't have enough. And so it says that you give them something to eat, he responded. And then it says, they said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? So again, Jesus responds with an impossible statement that they should feed them. Of course, they can't feed them. It's late, it's dark. And even if there were something close by, 200 denarii is essentially a year's worth of work which of course the disciples and Jesus don't have that much money on them, right? They're traveling, they're supported by other people. There is no way, there is no world where they could actually come up with this sort of money. 
Now, I just want to point out before we continue reading here, something interesting that's happening. And this happens often, that, the, that people often come to Jesus with a problem. Of course, in this situation, it is completely self-inflicted. They're the ones following Jesus. They're the ones spending all day there. And now there is a problem that they have brought upon themselves. They're hungry. And then what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus reacts in a way that is the completely opposite of how you and I react. What we see here is that in life, you and I, we often think about how people can fix their own problems. But Jesus is concerned with how we can make people's problems our own. And we do this even unintentionally, even with good motives, right? Something happens, someone has an issue, or maybe someone talks to you about a problem they have, and what is the first thing we do? Well, here is what you need to do to fix your problem, right? When oftentimes people just need someone to listen to them, or even better, to help them out. But what often happens is when people come to us with their issues, we try to, again, with good intentions, try to think of all the things that they should go and do to fix the problem that they found their self in, right? We love to give good people, give people advice. And again, for Jesus in this situation, the crowd brought this on himself. Uh, he is exhausted. His disciples are exhausted. And what does he do? He wants to be part of the solution. He never sends people out to figure it out on their own. And this is a great picture of the gospel, of God who concerns himself with our problems. He doesn't say, go and fix it yourself. He says, how can I be a part of the solution? This makes me think of a couple of weeks ago, and this is a really small example, but a couple of weeks ago, I drove into church on a Sunday morning, and I get out of my car back in December, and I hear a tss, and I'm like, great, right? And so I'm Walking around my car, I find the tire, and I actually see where the nail was. It actually turns out that it wasn't a nail. It was like a plastic pin that you write with. I have no idea how that popped my tire. And I'm like, great. You know, the air is coming out. I must have just run over it because the tire was still full of air. But I was like, you know, at the end of the day, at least this is good. It's, the good news is I know it's going to be flat. So like when I leave church later this afternoon, it's not like I'm about to go home and it's like, oh, my tire is flat. Like, I know. I know I've got to fix it. Whatever. Not a big deal. So I come in here, and we're like doing the run-through, getting ready for service, and I mentioned how my tire is flat, and uh, right before service, I was out there like in the lobby or near the front door, and someone walks in, and they say, Dylan, your tire is flat, and I was like, I know, and he's like, I'm going to change it for you after service. I was like, no, you don't need to change it for me. I'll help you. Just give me some time to talk to people, and he's like, no, I'm going to fix it for you. I was like, you really don't need to do that. So service ends. As soon as service ends, he comes right up to me. He's like, where's your keys? I was like, bro, just wait. No, he's like, where is your keys? So I give my keys, and he goes out and fix. He goes out to start working on my tire, and about 15 seconds later, oh, someone in the band and someone in the production booth was like, bro, where's your keys? We're going to go fix your flat tire. And I'm like, well, somebody's already out there. So I'm like, this is, my car needs to break down all the time. And this is awesome, right? But what happened in that moment is that people saw a problem, and instead of saying, hey, Dylan, your tire's flat. You need to patch it and put a uh, spare on and get it fixed. What do they do? They made it their problem, and they fixed it, right? This is what Jesus is doing here. He is taking people's problems onto himself. And so here's his solution, verse 38, Mark chapter 6. It says this, he, being Jesus, asked them, his disciples, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. So they muster up what they have. They hardly have any provisions. This is probably, this is not probably, this is definitely not enough food to even feed the disciples, let alone as we're going to see thousands and thousands of people. 
And yet anyway, Jesus tells the disciples to tell the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, of course, we know that Mark is very uh, selective with his words. Why would he include that the grass is green? Well, well, there's two reasons for it. Here's the first one. I want to point out something that Mark is doing, is that in this story of the feeding of the 5,000, Mark is yet again overlapping a story of Jesus with a well-known passage of Scripture in the Old Testament to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. The question is, what passage of Scripture is Mark trying to point us to with this story? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, think with me. Uh, What passage of Scripture, well-known, very famous, do you have a desolate place that is now described as a a place full of green grass or a green pasture that is also known to be located by water, which, of course, in this feeding, they had just gotten out of the boat, where there is a shepherd, of course, in this case, presented as Jesus, who is telling the people to sit down in this green pasture, in order that he might renew their strength. What Mark is doing is he's pointing us to the most well-known psalm in all of the Old Testament, Psalm 23. Even if you're not sure what Psalm 23 is at the top of of your head, this is the psalm that all movies, even in Hollywood, when there's like a pastor or a priest involved, they're like, we got to throw some scripture. They quote this one. This is the only one that they know of, right? And what is Psalm 23? Well, it's eight verses. I'm just going to read you the first four and show you how brilliantly Mark is saying that Jesus, again, is the fulfillment of these things. Here's Psalm 23, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Who is the shepherd in Mark 6? Jesus. What is Mark repeatedly trying to show us throughout the gospel? That Jesus is Lord. Verse 2, what does it say? It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So you have a group of people following Jesus by the water. He comes out of the boat and he makes them, right? He tells them that you need to sit down on the green grass or the green pastures. Now, why does he do this? Well, Psalm 23 verse 3 says this, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He tells the people to sit down so that he can restore them. And not just spiritually, but also physically. Why? Because he wants to lead them in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He is teaching the people. Again, we're not told the exact content, but we know enough from the book of Mark that it likely has to do with the coming kingdom of God, how he is the king, and how he is inviting us in. He wants to restore us and lead us in paths of righteousness, which sounds Really great, but then, of course, the well-known verse 4 then says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What Psalm Psalm 23 is saying and what uh, what we see in the book of Mark, again, remembering the order of which things were written, knowing that John the Baptist was just beheaded, what's happening here is that you will, if you're a follower of Jesus, there will be times where you will experience difficulty because of your faith. So the sheep in Psalm 23, or John the Baptist, experience difficulty not just because life is hard and bad things can happen, but because they're trying to be faithful, right? John the Baptist was literally beheaded because of his faithfulness. If he was not faithful to Jesus or to the Lord, he would have still been alive. But it's because his faithfulness that hurt him. Now, of course, we know at the end of the day, John the Baptist is in the kingdom of God, and it's all totally worth it. But he suffers mightily. 
right? John the Baptist suffers. Difficult things happen, not just in spite of, but actually because of your faith. Now, interestingly enough, the ancients would have made this connection. You're not a shepherd, probably. Uh, I'm certainly not a shepherd. But what would often happen is in the summer, you would have the shepherd with the sheep, and they would graze on, this, on the lower, uh, lower elevation where the grass was easy to get to. Well, once the grass was eaten, they would then have to go to places that were harder to get to where the grass would still be available, sometimes up a mountain, sometimes down a valley, sometimes through a difficult path, that literally the shepherd would lead his sheep through hardship so that they could experience life and refreshment and goodness. Some of you today are experiencing difficulty because you are faithfully following Jesus. This is what the psalmist is saying. This is what happens to John the Baptist, that we will walk through the valley of a shadow of death, but here's the good news, the second part of verse 4. But I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What Mark is trying to tell us is this, that Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 23. He is the fulfillment of all things. And there are times where following Jesus will lead you through difficult moments that you don't understand at the time for a reason, for your good and his glory. I mean, think about it. Sheep don't know anything. Right? They don't know why the shepherd leads them through a difficult path. They don't know that there's greener pastures on the other side. And so he leads them through hard things for their good. This kind of reminds me, Finley, our oldest, uh, she's six years old. And recently, she had to get a couple of teeth pulled. And the reason is because her mouth is small. And so the dentist was like, so she's got, she's got two problems. One, some of her teeth, even her adult teeth that she's, she's already lost a few teeth that are coming in are crooked because her teeth are crowded. There's not enough space for them to, to be where they're supposed to be. And secondly, they noticed from the x-rays uh, that her adult teeth aren't pushing up. They're not coming up because there's no room. And so you have to, we have to remove multiple teeth so that her teeth will straighten out and that her adult teeth will know that they can come in. And so, of course, you explain this to a six-year-old, uh, but six-year-olds aren't thinking about long-term dental health, right? Finley's not a fan of getting her teeth pulled. She has to go through something difficult so that she can experience life. And so she gets the teeth pulled and, you know, she works through it. And it's, I don't understand how teeth work, obviously, because I don't know how a lot of things work, but her teeth, they're already straightening out. Like no braces or anything. They were, they're just, they're straight. I'm like, how does this happen just by taking teeth out, right? She's already experiencing the benefit. And again, sometimes faithfulness to Jesus is why difficult things are happening. And again, it's not to say if you're really faithful now, you'll get the house and you'll get the relationship and you'll get the job. But there are things that God wants to do that sometimes requires going through the shadow of the valley of death. And if you will trust him, you will experience him in what he wants for you. This is what Mark is saying that Jesus does. He's the fulfillment of what Psalm 23 is talking about. And so here's what he does. Here is how he fulfills and restores the people. Mark chapter 6, verse 41. Here's what it says next. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people, which the disciples would have to be like, what is happening here? Like, fine, we'll do what you say. We'll sit them down. Like, they just keep getting food. That didn't make any sense to them. And then verse 42, it says, everyone ate and was satisfied. And of course, there's a lot going on here. Just as God, there's, there's, we don't have time to get through all of it, but there's also parallels to God. Uh, Jesus here is the fulfillment of what happens in the Exodus, where just as God provides for Israel in the desert, Jesus is providing for his people in the deserted place. Uh, we also see parallels to the Last Supper, where Jesus takes the bread, multiplies the bread, and gives it to his disciples. It's basically saying, this represents me, that I am the bread of 
life. Or we also see what happens, and if we'll finish the passage in verse 43, 44, then it says this. It says, they picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. I mean, this is incredible what Jesus is doing. It is certainly an amazing miracle, but I do want to point out one more thing that is happening that you and I might often miss, that this is not just a feel-good children's story of people gathering around Jesus, Jesus seeing that they're hungry and cares for them, which of course is true, but there's actually more going on here. In fact, we know that these people, what's actually going on here is after this miracle, these people are trying to make Jesus their king, that their leader against the Roman Empire, that he's going to violently lead them in war and victory to overthrow them. Now, you might say, how do you get that from this passage? Well, in verse 45, which we'll talk about more next week, it says immediately after this miracle, Jesus told his disciples to leave and he got in a boat and left himself. Uh, We also know that the area that they are in, in rural Galilee, was the epicenter of the Zealot movement, which one of his disciples was a Zealot himself, Simon the Zealot, who wanted to uh, create an army to violently overthrow the Roman government. In fact, in 70 AD, they do this, they lose, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem is destroyed because of it. And so you're in an area where people want to proclaim victory over the Romans. Uh, We also, again, know that the sheep without the shepherd is primarily military and, uh, in their context, military and leadership. And so they're starting to think, wow, this man is feeding all of us. He must be the Messiah, the one who's going to overthrow and bring his kingdom to the earth. We also see a lot of people in this passage in verse 31 uh, coming and going, which in a rural place is a little interesting that you have so many people coming and going. It's almost as if they're going out to tell people, hey, you need to come see what's happening here. Uh, We also see in verse 44, it's largely a male audience. It says 5,000 men. Of course, women and children would also have been there, but there seems to be a lot of men there. And of course, we know, just so you know, I'm not making this up. I'll just read this for you. It won't be on the screen. Uh, This is the only miracle that occurs in all four Gospels. And in John chapter 6, John's version of of this account ends by saying this in verse 14 and 15. It says, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And of course, lastly, as we're about to find out, this is also happening right before Passover, which is the largest gathering, yearly gathering of Jews, which would happen in Jerusalem, which is the perfect time to try to anoint your own king. But yet Jesus isn't interested in that. What Jesus is interested, what one biblical scholar, it's a few sentences long, but I think it's worth reading. It'll be on the screen. He says it this way. It is nevertheless clear from the, from the account that Jesus will not march to a populist or a militarist drumbeat. He will not be a militant messianic shepherd of the sheep. His model as host of the wilderness banquet is not that of Barabbas, who was the one who was released in favor of Jesus, but a, who was a zealot chieftain, but that of Moses. The repeated references to the wilderness in verses 31, 32, and 35 recall Israel's sojourn in the wilderness following the exodus from Egypt. The multiplication of loaves recalls the gift of manna. And Jesus' leading the people as a shepherd recalls Moses' leading a fledgling nation. Like Moses in Exodus 18, Jesus divides the crowd into groups. The shepherd that this wayward flock needs is not a guerrilla messiah, but a Moses to teach them, which of course is what Jesus does, and a David to lead them. It is their work that Jesus has come to fulfill. 
In other words, Jesus hasn't come to do what we might think he might want to, we might think he should do. He's come to do something else. Now, this next point sounds very superhero-ish, but if there is any superhero, it's Jesus. Here's what's happening here. That Jesus isn't the shepherd we want. He's the shepherd we need. Amen, somebody. Come on. Thank you. Right, here's what's happening here. Jesus came to claim victory, not to earn flashy style points, not to do it in a way that we think he is supposed to do it. He came to come and die to inaugurate his kingdom so that we might be apart. He doesn't do it the way people expect him to do it. In some ways, I don't know why, but I have this memory of me being a kid, and this is what it reminds me of, where we would play this game, me and one of my my friends in in our driveway, we'd play this game, we'd get these like hockey nets, these like small plastic hockey nets, they're not very big, and we would take a little, you know, a little mini soccer ball, and we would, it was like one-on-one, it was like soccer in the the driveway, and this friend of mine was way more athletic than I was, and uh, and I hate losing, like I'm super competitive, which is great when you're very average athletically, it's just the worst, right? And so... (laughs) But this is the one thing that I could beat him at. Because what would happen is, it's like one-on-one, I would just stand in front of the goal. That's all I would do. And he would kick it, he would do all these things, and when I would get the ball, I wouldn't be like close to my goal, but he would not be blocking his goal, and so I would kick it. Now, sometimes I would miss, because I'm a little bit farther away, and sometimes I would make it. And so I would beat him all the time. It was epic. And then one day, he's getting so mad at me. He's like, Dylan, what you're doing is so boring. All you're doing is standing there. And I was like... All I'm doing is winning, and winning is what's fun, right? And I don't care, nothing, if you are winning, it doesn't matter how you do it, that is what is fun, right? I know I got a problem. We took our kids go-karting a couple weeks ago at Frankie's, and Roman was like, eh, I don't want to do that again. And then Finley, the first time, went with Christina, she was like, it was fun. I was like, Finley, you want to ride with me? And uh, we were like, it was like a two-seater, and we started like in the back. But because I'm a light, I'm pretty light, and she's six years old, she's light, and the double-seater's a little faster, we were passing everybody. We wrecked two people, it was awesome. Right? But we won. And I was like, Finley, we came in first. And she's like, why are you so obsessed with winning? I was like, because it's fun. She's like so scared, sad that we crashed people. I'm like, they got to move. Right? But we won. We did what was actually needed. And Jesus here is not responding how they want. Let's take him by force. Let's make him our king. Jesus is our king. But he's going to do it in a way that's actually effective and good for us, even if it's different than how we might choose it. He's not the shepherd we want. He's the shepherd we need. Now, here's the thing. As, as cool as this story is, the question we have to ask ourselves, is it, is it actually believable, right? Like, we read some of these things about Jesus, and it's, and it's, it's uh, encouraging, and it's cool, but, but did it actually happen? Like, is our religious tradition like all the others that has really good morals, or did it actually happen? Is there reason to believe that this miracle actually occurred? <coughs> Sorry, it's the asthma. COVID. It's not COVID. <laughs> Here's what I want to do. To end, I want to point out a couple of things. Um, there is only one miracle, as I mentioned before, that is recorded in all four Gospels accounts, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, of course, I can't prove a miracle occur. Nobody can prove a miracle occur. We weren't back then. We weren't there when it happened. Uh, but we can ask this question. Does this narrative come from people who are part of the alleged event Or was it made up and added to by people later who had nothing to do with it, which is often the charge against the gospel writers 50, 100 years later. They just puffed up Jesus to be this Messiah that he wasn't actually. And so they throw these miracles in to advance this myth. So here's a question. 
are there details on this account that actually sh uh, show us that these people might have actually be recording something that actually happened? So let me do a couple of things. First, let's start with the numbers. How do you actually count 5,000 men? Is it pastor math? It's like, oh, there's a lot of people, probably about 500, and someone just adds a zero because 5,000 sounds a lot better. Or did this actually happen? Well, what we can do, because this passage is uh, talked about in all four Gospels, is you can put the details together and come up with quite a cool picture. And so here's what it says on the next slide. I want to read to you two verses in Mark 6, 39 and 40, and in Luke 9, 14 through 15, it says this. Mark 6, which we already read, then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sit down and sat down in groups in hundreds and fifties. Luke 9, it says, for there were about 5,000 men were there. Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did what he said and had them sat down. Now, if you have them sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties, this will lead you less to less than 100 groups. There's 12 disciples, which means each disciple had to count to six, seven, or eight. Do you think the disciples could have done that? Maybe, you know, you have a tax collector, you have a fisherman. There's likely they could count at least that high. It becomes, you know, somewhat plausible. Or what, if, what happens if you take some of these other random details together? On this next screen, the verses are kind of small, so I'll read them to you. Uh, but here's what we have it. Uh, both Mark and John comment on the grass, right? Mark 6, it says the there was green grass. And in John 6, it says there was plenty of grass. But it doesn't say why. How do we know that? Also in Mark 6, as we read, it says many people were coming and going, and it, but it does not tell us why. Yes, Jesus was there, but again, they're kind of in the middle of nowhere. Why were the, where would these people be actually coming from where they could go talk to them? The gospel doesn't say. But in John's gospel, in chapter 6, verse 4, it says Passover was near, which then begins to make sense of how you'd have all these people in this rural countryside. And then also in John chapter 6, verse 5, it says this, before Jesus does the miracle, it says, Jesus asked Philip where to buy bread from, not in Mark's account and John's account. But why does he ask Philip? Well, the gospel doesn't tell us. And then in Mark, John 6, 7, and 8, it says Philip and Andrew got in on the reply. Why is Andrew asking a question that Jesus didn't direct towards him, right? The gospel doesn't tell us. But Luke's gospel and his, and his account of the feeding of the 5,000 tell us that this feeding took place near Bethsaida. And in John chapter 1, we are introduced to the gospels. We are told that Philip and Andrew were from Bethsaida. Now, there's a lot more we could do this with, but what you begin to happen is you have all these random uh, details that make no sense on their own. But when you put them together, you start to see something really cool. In fact, when John chapter 6 mentions that the bread were barley loaves, of course, makes sense because it fits with the season of, bar, uh, of Passover where the barley harvest would have just taken place. Now, of course, this brings us back to the question, how would we know when the grass would have actually been green? Well, if we go to a uh, precipitation chart of a nearby town, here's how we know. This is Tiberias, the area that they were in. That arrow locates uh, when Passover would have been for any of those years. What you will have seen is you have the six uh, months of the most amount of rainfall in that area. The question is, would the grass have been green? The answer is, of course. Of course it would have been green. Now, again, I, I just say this to say this. Many people will argue that Jesus didn't actually perform any miracles. Uh, they will, again, they were instead attributed to him way after the fact, 
to kind of puff up this Jesus guy to believe, make people believe that he was the Messiah. And they say it's kind of like a game of telephone, right? Where you, you know, you, one person says something and the kind of the details get changed. And at the end of the day, it's like completely different. Now, there's a million reasons why that's a terrible account for what happens in the Gospels. The biggest one is because in telephone, you have to whisper it once and no one else can hear you. That's not how this stuff was actually transmitted. But the other problem you have is this. <clears throat> if that's how it occurred, if the miracles got puffed up and bigger and bigger and crazy and more fanciful, well, they wouldn't be explained in the Gospels the way that they are. In fact, when it comes to the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels, three things stand out. One is how many are attributed to him. So it's not just a few. There's a lot. Two is how undramatized they are. I mean, you would think if this was, if things were at, over time, it'd be like, this, this happened, and be like, wow, right? What does Mark say? Oh, he fed 5,000 people. Oh, he healed someone who couldn't walk. Oh, he, this woman with blood issue for 12 years. Oh, this girl he raised. Like, it's just, it happened next. Like, it's not this big event. It's just, this is what he did. And maybe third and most interestingly, that our first century accounts of Jesus, first and second century accounts of Jesus, you have the opponents of Christianity, both Jews and Romans, in the first century, who did not dispute that the miracles happened. What they disputed were the power where his miracles came from. Like, they, this, is, this, this is weird. Was it magic? Was it Satan? It happened, but how it happened was the problem. And of course, here is the final problem. There are so many miracles attributed to Jesus that the process from which this would have to have happened if they were all made up over time is that they would also have corrupted all the minor details that you would see. And yet what you see, again, even in this quick example, is that the minor details are always correct. They're always correct. In other words, you couldn't question whether or not a miracle actually occurred, but still have all the minor details correct. Right? They would have been altered. They would have been changed. Honestly, the small details probably would have been left out altogether. Yet that's not what you see in the Gospels. In the Gospels, you see every single time, this is not a Christian thing, this is just historical reality as you study them. The topography is always right. The geography is always right. The descriptions of names and locations is always right. Even how Jesus is referenced, right? Sometimes he's referenced as a son of David. Sometimes he's referenced as uh, where, he's, where he comes from, where he was born, where he grew up, as Mary's son. All the times that he is referenced with a description, it's from an area of people where in that region, this is how they would have differentiated Jesus from everybody else. And I just say all that to say this, that it is far more likely that you would get the main miracle correct and the minor details wrong. That's what you would assume to see happen if these were made up over time. Which means, however, if the Gospels could correctly get the minor details correct, it is absolutely logical and reasonable to believe that they could get the major details correct as well. Again, it doesn't prove that it happened, but it has to make us sit back and wonder. If they got the small things right, maybe they are just reporting things as they actually happened. And so I say that to say this, here's what I want to close. I don't just want to say, oh, isn't this, isn't this cool? Isn't this believable? I want us to reflect, again, on what Jesus does here. He takes people's problems. He doesn't say, go and fix it. He says, how can I be part of the solution? So I want to leave us with two questions here this morning. Here's the first one. Where have I renounced responsibility that God is inviting me into? <clears throat> in your life, what are the problems or the issues that someone or somebody in your life might be facing that you, again, not necessarily intentionally are just trying to tell them what to do instead of like Jesus, making their problem your own. And the second question would be this. What does it look like to do what he is asking me to do? 
knowing the problems and the areas of life that God has placed you in, the people, the seasons of life that he has surrounded you by, what does it look like what God, to do what God is asking you to do? Now, what did God do for us, right? He sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Not because we earned it or deserve it, but to take our problem, our sin, our shame, he took it so that we could be a part of his kingdom. And so as a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, and in response to what Christ has done, we live out this love so that other people might experience and attain it. And here's what I know. Sometimes we're like, well, I don't know what he's asking me to do. How am I supposed to figure it out? I'm so glad you asked. We've got this thing starting tomorrow called 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting. It is a great way to figure it out. And so here's what I just, here's what I wanted to encourage you to do. I know 20, prayer and fasting, it kind of seems like, especially the fasting part, it's like, oh, I don't know. That seems like, remember, that God always invites us to do things not out of obligation, but out of invitation. And here's what I would encourage you to do. Take five things, maybe personal, family, uh, somebody you know, and have, have five things that you maybe include, like, God, what would you have me do in this situation? What does it look like to be faithful here? And take 21 days and pray about it. Because here's what I know. Oftentimes, we have something happening in our life, and we take, like, a, like we pray about it, like, two or three times, and we kind of, kind of consider, like, I've been praying about this forever. But let's actually do that. And then when it comes to fasting, do something, uh, we, we encourage dietary, but again, it's not about checking a box. It can be taking out a certain food group for 21 days or for certain days doing certain things. Maybe a couple of 24 to 48 hour uh, uh, complete fasts or maybe fasting from a certain you know, meal on certain days over the next 21 days. It doesn't have to be every single day, but take three weeks to take some time to ask God what he might have you do and to go before him, to start off your year pursuing Jesus. If we don't know what he's asking us to do, it might be that we haven't taken the time to ask. And so I would just encourage you, whatever that looks like for you, to take some time over these next three weeks and ask, what is he inviting me into so that I might help other people experience his goodness and his grace? And so I want to invite the band onto the stage, and we're going to move into a time of confession where we can do that here as we begin our fast, our 21 days of prayer and fasting uh, next week. We do this every week here at New City, or yeah, every week here at New City Church. We take a few minutes and we, and we go before the Lord privately together, but privately before the Lord, and we just ask God, we confess where we have fallen short. And again, we do this out of invitation, not obligation, uh, that you don't do this being like, God, I'm terrible. And he's like, finally, what took you so long? Right? God always responds to repentance with grace. And so no matter what you have walked in here with, it's only nine days into the year and you're like, I've already blown it, right? God is saying, I'm here and I forgive you and I love you. And so would you take a few minutes to go before the Lord, confess where you have fallen short, ask for his grace, and then we're going to take communion together to remind ourselves that God is not far from us, but that he loves us and that he is always inviting us in and inviting us home. So would you take a few minutes to go to the Lord for a time of confession?